Good evening, I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. On the news hour tonight, the U.S. strikes Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and Syria in retaliation for the deadly attack on American troops. A stronger-than-expected jobs report shows the resilience of the U.S. economy, but raises concern that the Fed might not lower interest rates soon. In South Carolina, Congressman James Clyburn discusses President Biden's outreach to black voters ahead of the Democrats' first official primary. You've got to get boots on the ground. And we've got to make a significant investment in boots on the ground. Welcome to the News Hour. The U.S. has started a series of military strikes against Iranian-backed militias in both Syria and Iraq tonight. The bombing is in retaliation for an attack last weekend that killed three American soldiers and wounded dozens of others in Jordan. Nick Schifrin has been reporting on these fast-moving developments and joins us here now. So, Nick, what's the latest? What can you tell us? The U.S. military said it used 125 munitions on more than 85 targets across seven locations uh, in Iraq and Syria, and the targets included command and control and intelligence centers, as well as, as well as storage facilities with missiles, rockets, drones that these groups have been using to target U.S. soldiers. Uh, the National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said just a few minutes ago that these targets were specifically connected to attacks to U.S. troops in the region. There have been more than 160 attacks on U.S. troops across Iraq and Syria, including the one this weekend that killed three U.S. soldiers. Uh, but the targets tonight uh, went further than any U.S. strike that that right there were the attacks that these uh, proxy groups have launched against mm -hmm. U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. But what was significant about tonight's U.S. strikes is that the targets went beyond these proxy groups. The targets included the Quds Force. That is the part of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps that sponsors these groups that the U.S. says provides weapons, intelligence, and training to these groups. And what's significant about that is it's the first time in the last three months we've seen these attacks that the U.S. have attacked Iranians. These are Iranians, Iranian weapons, Iranian sites. Yes, they are connected to the proxy groups, but they are not the Iraqis and the Syrians who are actually pushing the button. These are Iranians. And that is the first time that we've seen that. Also significant about these strikes, Amna, the U.S. flew B-1 bombers from the United States in order to attack Iraq and Syria, also something we have not seen. A senior defense official told me that strategically it is a bit of a sign to Iran, that a reminder that the U.S. has the ability to fly these bombers, uh, as well as the fact that the bombers bring heavier bombs to, to, to hit the underground facilities that the U.S. wants to hit. Uh, although Kirby, on the record, just now denied that they were trying to send any message to Iran tonight. Uh, and the officials tonight reiterate something that we've heard from U.S. Uh, officials in the past, that this is the, quote, first tier of a multi-tier response. As President Biden put it today, our response began today. It will continue at times and places of our choosing. And, you know, Amna, the day began with a reminder for the commander-in-chief about the loss that led to tonight's strikes. It is one of the military's most solemn rituals. At Dover Air Base in Delaware today, the commander-in-chief paying respect to the soldiers whose sacrifice was ultimate. Three caskets holding Staff Sergeant William Rivers, who today received a posthumous promotion, and Sergeants Kennedy Sanders and Brianna Moffett all three from an engineering unit based in Georgia. They were killed last weekend in their beds in Tower 22 in Jordan by a drone that U.S. officials believe was Iranian. Iran's military showcased some of its attack drones just last week. The group that the U.S. says fired it is part of the pro-Iranian proxy umbrella group Islamic Resistance of Iraq. U.S. officials indicate they did not want to escalate and so did not target Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in Iran. In recent days, Iran seems to have sent signals of de-escalation. The UN's nuclear watchdog says Tehran is slowing the speed at stockpiling enriched uranium, which it would need if it decided to produce nuclear weapons. And Iran's supreme leader reportedly urged the government to distance itself from its proxy groups, including another member of the umbrella group, Harakat al-Nujaba, which vowed today to keep attacking U.S. troops. 
Today, before the strikes, Iran's President Ibrahim Raisi reiterated that Iran neither sought nor would shrink from war. We have said many times we will not initiate any war, but if anyone wants to bully, Iran will respond firmly. U.S. officials say they still don't have any sense at this moment of casualties at these sites, whether civilian or militant on them. Nick, you mentioned the administration describes this as the first in a multi-tier response. What does that mean? It's a good question. They haven't really defined it. But when I talk to U.S. officials about the idea of that, they distinguish between different kinds of targets that the next few days could perhaps uh, include. So tonight's targets were storage facilities, as we talked about, command and control centers. That is distinct from targeting leadership. So that would be a Another step that the U.S. could consider. Uh, the U.S. insists, or U.S. officials I talk to insist, that they do not plan to target Iran itself. But the strikes could expand to Yemen, of course. The ongoing U.S. and U.K. effort in Yemen has tried to degrade Houthi capacities who have launched three dozen attacks on U.S. ships and international shipping lanes. Uh, and U.S. officials are telling me tonight to expect some kind of strike or some kind of concerted effort to continue to degrade uh, the Houthi ability in Yemen. Uh, as for Iran's response, uh, of course, it's too early to know that. Uh, but the administration officials I speak to say that they hope that this is calibrated. They hope that it's calibrated to try and stop these attacks from continuing without sparking any kind of war with Iran. There's the question of whether there's any diplomatic uh, talk secretly between the United States and Iran. Tonight, John Kirby, the National Security Council, said there had been no communication between Tehran and Washington. But again, what Washington is trying to do is stop the attacks, but not go to war with Iran. Nick Sheffrin, with the late breaking news of these U.S. strikes overseas. Nick, thank you so much. Thank you. In the day's other headlines, the monthly jobs report today indicates that hiring is continuing at a strong pace. U.S. employers added 353,000 jobs last month, double what many expected. The unemployment rate remained at 3.7 percent. And the latest report found that 3.1 million new jobs were created last year, making it among the best years for job growth since 1999. A federal judge in Washington has postponed former President Donald Trump's March trial on charges he sought to overturn the 2020 election. No new date has been set. That comes as a federal appeals court has yet to rule on a pending appeal from Mr. Trump over his claims of presidential immunity. Meantime, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis admitted in a court filing to having a personal relationship with a special prosecutor she hired for Mr. Trump's Georgia election fraud case. Willis insists there's no basis to dismiss the case or disqualify her from the prosecution. California is bracing for a second atmospheric river storm to dump more rain and snow across that state. It's expected to arrive late Saturday, fueled by a band of moisture formed over the Pacific Ocean. It comes on the heels of the week's first powerful storm that flooded streets and highways in Long Beach, with first responders rescuing people stranded in the floodwater. A Ukrainian intelligence official says Russia is refusing to return the bodies of scores of Ukrainian prisoners of war who allegedly died in a plane crash. Moscow claims it was transporting them on a military aircraft last month when Ukraine shot it down, which Kyiv denies. Meantime, at The Hague, the UN's top court said it has jurisdiction to rule on only part of Ukraine's genocide case against Russia. In Kenya, a truck carrying liquid petroleum gas exploded overnight in Nairobi, killing at least three people and injuring 280. 24 of those are said to be in critical condition. Cell phone video caught a fireball erupting from a gas depot late last night. Gas cylinders were thrown into the air, sparking more fires in that neighborhood. Firefighters battled the inferno for hours. I saw people running. Um, Mothers and children, they, were, they had small babies carrying. I saw girls and boys were bleeding like the... It was so it was so bad. It was a bad experience. I saw, I saw a man who was bleeding like from the head. Kenyan officials say the gas depot was not approved to operate because of its proximity to residential areas. North Korea fired more cruise missiles off its western coast today. It was their fourth round of cruise missile tests so far this year. That came as leader Kim Jong-un ordered his military to ramp up their war preparations. North Korean state media published these photos of Kim touring naval projects at a shipyard. 
Kim has increasingly focused on strengthening his country's Navy in recent months. Tesla is recalling virtually all of its vehicles sold in the U.S. over the size of their dashboard warning lights. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration said the brake, park, and anti-lock brake lights were too small and could raise the risk of a crash. The recall affects nearly 2.2 million Tesla vehicles from model years 2012 through 2024. Strong tech earnings boosted stocks on Wall Street today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 134 points to close at 38,654. The Nasdaq climbed 267 points. The S&P 500 added 52 to notch a new record high. And two passings of note tonight. Actor Carl Weathers died in his sleep Thursday. The former professional football player became a Hollywood star over his decades-long career, taking on a number of iconic action and comedy roles for TV and film. He was best known for playing Apollo Creed in the Rocky movies opposite Sylvester Stallone. And more recently, he starred in the Star Wars series The Mandalorian. Carl Weathers was 76 years old. And legendary radio host and social activist Joe Madison has died. Known as the Black Eagle, he hosted a popular live morning show on Sirius XM Radio for years, tackling human and civil rights issues both on and off the air. While an official cause of death was not provided, Madison had fought a years-long battle with prostate cancer. Joe Madison was 74 years old. Still to come on the news hour, El Salvador's vice president on that country's upcoming election and controversial crackdown on gang violence. How Taylor Swift became the latest target of right-wing conspiracy theorists. And David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart weigh in on the week's political headlines. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. Today's job report shows the labor market was running hot again last month, and it's been resilient for months despite recession predictions last year. The unemployment rate has been below 4% for two consecutive years, a record we haven't seen in over 50 years. At the same time, the Federal Reserve indicated this week it's too soon to start lowering interest rates. Joining us now is Austin Goolsby, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. Welcome back to the News Hour. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me back. So 355,000 jobs added last month, unemployment below 4%. What do all these numbers tell you about where the economy is right now? It still feels strong. I mean, the, the headline number was, was almost breathtaking. If you peel back the onion a little bit, it's not as strong as that, as that headline number advertises because a lot of the increase in jobs were part-time jobs. So if you look at the, let's call it the total hours worked, that's not up as much as just the number of jobs was up, but it's still very strong, and it's in the context that inflation has been coming in better than expected as well. Uh, so both sides of that uh, have been quite positive. It's worth noting the projections for today's jobs numbers were off quite a bit again, and predictions about a possible recession last year were also off. What is it about this economy right now that makes forecasting so hard? <laughs> it's always hard. It's always hard to forecast. And any one month's number has a kind of a plus or minus 110,000 to it. So it, 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 this was a miss to the downside, we came in with a very strong number, almost double what was expected. But when you come out of such a weird moment as what COVID was, we probably shouldn't be surprised that our models aren't, aren't that great at figuring out what's going to happen. At the same time, we know mortgage rates, car loans are still very high. We know the Fed Chair Jerome Powell indicated that rate cuts won't happen in early spring, as many had hoped that they might. Does today's report line up with that, in, in your view? You still think it's too soon to lower rates? As a member of the Federal Open Market Committee, I don't like tying our hands ahead of time when we got weeks and months of of data to come in. We, we ought to base those decisions on how the actual data come through. I think more and more progress like what we have seen on inflation and on jobs is, is what we need to see to feel comfort th that we're on target. As you know, the law, the Federal Reserve Act gives the Fed a dual mandate job 
to maximize employment and stabilize prices. And that's what the Fed has to, has to pay attention to, are those two things. And so far, it's been going pretty well. The year 2023, by that dual mandate goal, went quite well. And we just want to make sure that, that we're on path to see that. Inflation has been coming down. As you mentioned, the jobs numbers are good, but there are some things that impact people's everyday lives that remain really tough. Grocery prices in particular, we know they jumped 25% over the last four years and they remain high for millions of households. That is it, that's a critical everyday financial pinch, right? So for the people who see headlines that say the economy is strong, the economy is coming back and don't feel it every day, what can you say to them about when that will change? Yeah, look, perfectly fair point. And we look, we went through a period where inflation was way, way too high, far higher than than where the Fed's target is or where we want it to be. And price levels are still uh, are still elevated. The question is, is that the thing that drives vibes or do vibes lag actual conditions? I, I don't totally know the answer to that. I know that the Fed job, like I say, by law, is maximize employment and get the inflation rate down to 2%. And that's what the Fed is, is going to be doing. How that falls out in the vibes and the price level, is a, that's, that's a second matter. But the Fed can't really adjust that without using its one instrument. It just has the one instrument of raise rates or lower rates. If you're trying to get the price level back to what it was some years ago, you would really have to cr just crank down the economy to do that. So that's not in, in our card deck. I got to ask you, too, all of this is unfolding, of course, in an election year. And you know well the intersection of presidential politics and economic issues from your time and the administration. Former President Trump is again accusing the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, of acting politically. His latest statement says this. He says, I think he's going to do something, speaking of Mr. Powell, to probably help the Democrats, I think, if he lowers interest rates. It looks to me like he's trying to lower interest rates for the sake of maybe getting people elected. What what do you say to people who share that concern or are seeing any of the Fed's actions through a political lens? Well, they shouldn't. And the Fed is totally transparent. They put out the minutes and later will put out the full transcript of the meetings. And just know that the Federal Open Market Committee has, by law, dual mandate of what they look at. It bases the decisions on actual economic conditions and data. That's what will drive what the Fed can do. When you look at the big picture now, is there any other lever that you think Congress or the president should be using at this moment, in, in your view, to keep the economy moving in the right direction? Well, as you know, the monetary authorities, our job is a very narrow lane of just monetary policy. We, we don't weigh in on fiscal policy or congressional opinion. They, they can do whatever they feel is appropriate. And our Conditions, I say it's sort of the Midwest motto, we take the conditions as they come. There is no bad weather, there is only bad clothing, and we will, we will deal with what, what other the conditions are and forward the mandate. That is Austin Goolsby, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. Mr. Goolsby, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to speak with you. My pleasure. Thank you. South Carolina voters head to the polls tomorrow for the first official Democratic primary of the year. Four years ago, black voters in South Carolina rescued Joe Biden's bid for the presidency, fueled in large part by an endorsement from Congressman James Clyburn. That South Carolina victory put then-candidate Biden on a path to the White House. I spoke with Congressman Clyburn earlier today about the president's standing among the Democratic base and with black Americans in particular. Congressman Clyburn, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. So I know you say the president still enjoys strong support in South Carolina, but more broadly, a December Associated Press poll found that 50% of black adults said they approve of President Biden, but that's compared with 86% who said the same thing back in July of 2021. What do you think accounts for that slip in support overall? Well, I don't think there's been a big slip in support. I think that people express themselves uh, at the time they were asked the question. Now, 
back at the time this polling was taking place, I was asking questions uh, about people who uh, believed what they were seeing on social media. The best example I know is on student loan debt relief. Joe Biden had promised that. And that was a big, big deal in the African-American community. And when he offered uh, his uh, programs uh, to reduce or eliminate that debt, he got sued. Uh, and that lawsuit uh, was lost. And everybody focused on the fact that he lost the lawsuit. Nobody focused on the fact that there were four other categories that he was working on, which had resulted in $137 billion in debt elimination for 3.7 million people. That was not being reported. And there was never a report in South Carolina about that until Joe Biden came to South Carolina Emanuel Church. I introduced him that day and I decided uh, to go uh, a different route in introducing the president. And I brought that up. Immediately, they started reporting on it. Found one young lady at South Carolina State, my alma mater, where we're going to be this afternoon. She had gotten $256,000 in debt relief and had never been reported on. And these kinds of things have people thinking that Joe Biden had not kept any promises. People didn't tie uh, these programs uh, like the uh, Rescue Act, the largest infrastructure bill in the history. Now here in South Carolina, uh, we are uh, improving roads and bridges like we've never done before. That is because of Joe Biden's bipartisan infrastructure bill, but people didn't tie that to him. Insulin, uh, $35 a month. My late wife was spending upwards of $800 a month on the insulin uh, for the diabetes that she lost her life to. Now you're saying people on Medicare, you got a cap of $35 a month. So these things were not being reported uh, to the American people sufficiently. Now that people are hearing about them, we're getting the word out, not to mention the jobs report this morning double what people had projected. Uh, the growth in the economy last quarter double what people had projected. Joe Biden is doing what he said he would do, and the American people are beginning to feel it. And that's why you got those numbers. I guarantee you, you'll see. Check the black precincts uh, tomorrow night. I guarantee you see great approval of Joe Biden. Well, you recently said that you were concerned about the Biden campaign's ability to reach black voters and that the campaign, in your words, needed to flood the zone. What more should the Biden campaign, in your view, be doing? That's what I'm talking about now, flooding the zone, uh, getting this information out there, using our own methods of getting it out there, using uh, social media, using digital stuff, using uh, boots on the ground. Look. This campaign is going to be one on turnout. Now, how best to turn voters out? I maintain that the best way to turn voters out is not on television. It's on the ground. You've got to get boots on the ground. And we've got to make a significant investment in boots on the ground. Congressman, there was a moment during the 2020 campaign when then-candidate Biden referred to himself as a transitional candidate, a bridge to the next generation of Democratic talent. Of course, President Biden has every right to run again, but there are Democrats who support him, but who question, given his age, why he didn't pass the torch. <laughs> I don't understand why you feel that you place a limit on someone's transition. Is a transition for four years or for eight years? He is a transitional president moving uh, from the debacle of the Trump years into uh, laying a foundation for the future of our party. And he is going to uh, pass the torch uh, to a younger generation, uh, to a more progressive generation. And, but he's not going to do it on anybody else's timetable, but his own. And so I don't know why people think they have a right to tell you 
how long the transition period ought to be. There's little doubt that Joe Biden will emerge as the winner tomorrow of South Carolina's Democratic primary. But what do you hope the overall message is coming out of South Carolina tomorrow? That the majority of the voters in the Democratic primary in South Carolina will pick freedom and democracy over autocracy any day. This is about the future. And I hope the time will come in this election that the American people will see that they have a responsibility. This is not the Democratic Party's responsibility. This is this country's responsibility to maintain this democracy and to maintain the freedoms. And I would hope uh, that that's the message that comes out uh, tomorrow night. That is South Carolina Democratic Congressman James Clyburn. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. This weekend, El Salvador is holding its general election, and all eyes are on incumbent President Nayib Bukele. He came to power in 2019 and has since overseen a vast and brutal crackdown on gangs that terrorized the nation for decades, arresting more than 75,000 people. His popularity has soared, but his government has been accused of mass human rights abuses and dismantling democratic institutions. Judges allied with Bukele reinterpreted a constitutional ban on re-election, clearing his path to run for a second term, along with his vice president, Felix Ulloa, who sat down with me in San Salvador earlier this week. I asked him how long his country can continue with mass arrests and detentions. This is a big change, and this, this happened because uh, our policies regarding the, you know, dealing with the gangs, the violence in the community, and the decision by the President Bukele to face this challenge. For us, when we took office, it was the first challenge, to bring back the peace, the harmony, to the communities that were under the control of the gangs. So once we declared the war against the gangs in year 2022, we started dealing with these uh, criminal structures. Uh, now we have over 76,000 uh, captured inmates coming from those structures. And the issue of the sustainability of this uh, process, as we said, is now in the hands of the population because now the people trust in the institutions. We can say that this is a new country. At the same time, you've gone from having the highest murder rate in the world to now having the highest incarceration rate in the world. The criticism is that there are a lot of innocent people being rounded up and detained. I mean. Can you continue with that? Take a look to the big picture. Mm. We have so far 76,000 imprisoned inmates. Mm -hmm. From those, most of 90% of them are verified that they belong to the gangs and to the criminal structure. 90% of 90%, them. 90% because from all these persons that has been captured over these two years that the state of, of exemption mm -hmm. was in place, more than 6,000 has been released because they prove in court that they were innocent. But so, 6,000 people, if I may, that's basically one out of every 10 or so people that you're rounding up is innocent. That one I'm saying. Is that acceptable so, to you it, as a race? I mean, we try to do our best, but we're not perfect. We are human beings, and human beings make mistakes. What about and those that, who have yet to be released, those I mean, who are it, still detained? It's, it's part of the job. I mean, if you want to have a perfect job, you can never get it because the perfect is enemy of the good. You want to do the perfect, you will never act. So you have to do our, your best and you have the duty and the responsibility to recognize your mistakes. At the same time, one of the reforms I know that's been pushed through has meant mass hearings are now acceptable. Yeah. Up to 900 people yeah, in yeah, a yeah, single yes, hearing. This is, How is that justice? Absolutely. This is an innovation of the penal law. It's an, innovation. it's an innovation for 900 yes. people to be tried at the same time. Yeah, that's due process to it's you. It's due process because it's, a, it's under the law. To do that in a legal process in court, you have to create the provision in the penal code. So we modify this uh, this, this this responsibility, which is in the past yes, was sir. personal. How long you will take to conduct individual process for 76,000 k? It will take. 
hundred years to do that. So the only way is to, to, proceed, to, to, to proceed and to change the structure. The criticism, as you know, is that this denies people due process, that there's no way hundreds of people can get a fair trial at the same time. What I hear you saying in your mind, though, is that the end justifies the means. No, no, is that no, correct? no, 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 no that, that's not correct. What I'm saying is, in El Salvador, you are witnessing a different country for the 21st century. If you were a lawyer, you could understand. I am a lawyer, and I, I, I study penal law from all the doctrines, different doctrines. As a lawyer, could you uh, defend 900 people at no, the same time? Yeah, why not? Because you are not defending 900 people. You are defending one, one only accused, which is the structure. Can I ask about another reform that I know has gotten a lot yeah, of attention? Of course, yes. The law was changed so that children can be treated as adults in the legal system that was lowered from the age of 16 to yeah. 12. 12 seems very young to treat someone as an adult in the legal system. Help uh -huh. us understand why yeah. that was necessary. Do you know why? Because young people from 12, 13 years can kill you. And they went to kill you. And they were sent to kill people because the, 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 the leaders of the gangs, they understood that under 16 years old, they were not charged as an adult. So they sent the kids to kill people. So they so, should be charged and treated in the legal system I mean, as adults. Tell me what, what else could you try? Is, is there you any have, duty for the state to protect those children, well, to rehabilitate them? Absolutely. But this common later. Now you are facing uh, young people under 16 years old, 15, 14. They have through three, four homicides. And the, and the law, in general terms, mm -hmm. allow to the gangs to kill people without being charged or you know, escaping of the justice. Now we trapped that, we, we closed that. It was like, like a, you know, uh, a loophole that was in the law. And then we closed that loophole. As you mentioned, you are a constitutional lawyer. Yeah. Um, and you've previously said when you looked at your constitution that it was very clear that it did not allow for consecutive presidential terms. Mm -hmm. That all changed in 2021 when uh, Supreme Court magistrates who were appointed by President Bukele, they reinterpreted that clause to say he could run again. So here we are now. You and he are both running again for consecutive terms. Do you worry that it weakens the Constitution to have judges who are viewed as allies of President Bukele change it in his favor? No. I mean, uh, do you think that the legal system in the United States will be weakened because the, the, the member, the justice of the Supreme Court were appointed by, by President Trump? No, I mean, this is the way well, that this is. I'm asking about here in no, El Salvador, no, no. though. What I'm saying is, it works in any place under the rule of law, in any democratic process. These Supreme Court uh, chambers interpreted the Constitution. They said that you can quote that, Article one, uh, 100, uh, 152, mm -hmm. number one. If you check that, you will find the legal base to run for President Bukele, because that article said the person who is in the presidency, if he wants to run for another period, has to fulfill two conditions. First, he should be in the first term, because if he was in the, in, in, in the second term, he cannot run. And second, he has to take a leave of answer. Can I ask you, when, this, when the court ruled that this new interpretation of the Constitution was coming out, U.S. officials came out and said that that decision undermines democracy. Yeah, because Do you agree with know, that? You know, they don't know our legal constitution. System. You're saying they misunderstood it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Can I ask how you would characterize the current relationship between El Salvador and the U.S.? It's, it's really good. We have an excellent ambassador. In, in the past, there were some misunderstandings because the type of ambassadors that we have or the, the envoys from the administration here. They were two juniors. They didn't understand what was going on. And they came like they were going to their, you know, the backyard. And that's what the president said, no, you're not coming to the backyard. This is a sovereign country. So once we respect each other, the relations are better. I mean, and for us, the United States is one of the most important allies that we have. Mm -hmm. You know, our population, fifth, a fifth percent of our population lives in the United States. Mm -hmm. What we want is to maintain a good relation with a state which has been our ally, our friends, and we want, as the president said, we want to be partners. Let us treat us as partners. So in doing that, 
to do business, you have to maintain good relationship. And that's what we are maintaining now with the, this U.S. administration and whatever could be elected in, in November this year. I mean, because it's not a matter of uh, political preference. We're not Democrats, we're not Republicans. We respect any administration, any presidency that is elected by American people. Vice President Felix Ulloa, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. On Sunday, the Kansas City Chiefs upset the Baltimore Ravens in the AFC Championship game, but some of the attention was focused on one person in the stands, that singer Taylor Swift. And as Laura Barone Lopez reports, major right-wing conspiracies are now revolving around the music icon and her football star boyfriend. From country sweetheart, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, to pop icon and billionaire megastar. We all know Taylor Swift openly perpetuates all the mainstream liberal talking points. Now, the center of a right-wing conspiracy theory. They're gearing up for an operation to use Taylor Swift in the election. Now, the women who run the Biden campaign want to set the big guy up. The most unpopular president of all time wants to have a relationship with Taylor Swift. That's what practice was about. It was about practicing the script. A year ago, a conspiracy took off when a former Texans running back joked that the NFL was scripted. Then on Sunday, the Kansas City Chiefs upset the Baltimore Ravens, fueling lies that the NFL changed the script to capitalize on these two. Taylor Swift and her boyfriend, Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey. It's a coordinated marketing campaign by Democrats to leverage celebrities to excite their base into coming out and voting. And more recently, a new element was added to the conspiracy theory. Right-wing news pundits are now calling the Swift-Kelsey spectacle a psychological operation, staged by Democrats to give Biden a big boost in his re-election bid. We live in a world that is animated by chaos for the most part, and conspiracy theories help explain that chaos. Researcher Joan Donovan has been studying online disinformation for years. She says conservatives are using this conspiracy to critique Biden, stay relevant, and animate their followers. But over on the right wing, I think what they're anticipating on X and uh, is really that Taylor Swift, who had endorsed Joe Biden in 2020, is likely to continue to endorse him. I think deeper uh, in, in a historical sense, the conspiracy theories about the NFL are also very pertinent amongst the right wing because of all of the history that has gone on with Black Lives Matter and Colin Kaepernick. So it is a, a definite uh, draw for this audience to critique the NFL and what they represent in terms of U.S. culture. And conservative figures like former presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy chimed in, tweeting, I wonder who's going to win the Super Bowl. And I wonder if there's a major presidential endorsement coming from an artificially, culturally propped up couple this fall. Donovan says over time, conspiracy theories feed on each other. Once you search for that kind of conspiracy on a place like YouTube, the recommendation algorithms are going to keep rewarding and reinforcing that behavior. So it actually becomes very hard to leave a conspiracy theory uh, behind because of the way social media is ordered. Unfortunately, what it does to our mainstream media ecosystem is it forces you to respond as a journalist because so many people are talking about it. But I do think there's room for social media companies to look more closely at their algorithms and see what it is that they're reinforcing uh, so that uh, fringe conversations don't become fodder for mainstream news. She says facts related to big cultural or political events, like the Biden campaign hoping for another Swift endorsement, and the Swift-Kelsey relationship being worth millions in brand value for the NFL, can quickly shift into full-blown conspiracy theories. At any rate, fans still hope to see Swift in the stands on Super Bowl Sunday. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Laura Barone-Lopez. And today, a Pentagon spokesperson, when asked, denied that Taylor Swift was part of a Department of Defense psychological operation to get President Biden reelected. One senior administration official telling Politico, quote, the absurdity of it all boggles the mind.
congressional gridlock on key issues like immigration and taxes are being affected by the 2024 presidential race. For all of this and more, we turn to the analysis tonight of Brooks and Capehart. That's New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. Good to see you both, as always. So I want to start with your reaction to the U.S. tonight starting a series of military strikes against Iran-backed militias in Iraq and Syria. This response, we should say, is expected to be just the beginning of, uh, of a longer response. David, you first. I think it was proportionate. You know, uh, we've got to do, I think, be strong and show resolve, uh, establish deterrence, establish defense, freedom of the seas, but you don't want to sow chaos. And so I think what the administration done is hit the Iranian-backed militias without hitting Iran itself, which Lindsey Graham and a lot of other Republicans, I'm sure, will say we should have hit Iran. I've become a little suspicious of the idea that in the Middle East, you should go out to solve your problem to f seek some p permanent solution. And that's what Israel's trying to do with Hamas. Maybe they're right to do it. I think they need to defeat Hamas. But the idea that we can somehow defang Iran all at once, uh, that, that to me would probably not work. And so this is a proportional response. Jonathan, how do you see it? Yeah, I, I agree with David. But I also would uh, add that the timing of this, at least the announcement of the strikes happening, is um, interesting. Because today we had, <clears throat> excuse me, today we had the dignified uh, transfer of the bodies of the, the three American service members who were killed. You had the Secretary of Defense there on the tarmac for this very solemn ceremony. You had the President and the First Lady there at Dover, Dover Air Force Base for this solemn ceremony. Carried, I think it was carried live on television, but it was carried in full when the video came in. The entire nation got to see this. And then the world found out that the United States responded. I think that, that that sort of timing, plus the use of B-1 bombers in this operation, sends a very clear signal to the region, but also to Iran, that the United States isn't messing around. And President Biden and his top aides had been clear they don't want a proxy war with Iran to become a more significant conflict. They don't want to draw the U.S. into a wider war in an already unstable region. How do they head off that possibility when it appears to be inching closer? Uh, with Goldilocks, yeah, just right. And Iran, to be fair, has sent some messages that we don't want a war right now either. That doesn't mean they won't want it someday. And so the historian Hal Brands had a good essay in Foreign Affairs over the last week or two, which said, go back to the 1930s. There were three regional conflicts. Japan was sweeping through China. Germany was obviously establishing fascist rule in Central Europe or in Western Europe, and then Italy was trying to establish a fascist empire in Africa. And what happened over the next few years was those three separate regional conflicts coalesced into one big conflict, which we called World War II. And so what we need to prevent is that Iran, China, and Russia will not coalesce into one anti-liberal, completely violent uh, moment. And that's why I think this moment is so fraught. And I think it's why the Biden administration has tried to be strong but tempered in the middle of it, not to spark that kind of coalescence. But also keep in mind that the strikes that have, that have happened tonight, uh, tonight, our time, apparently is the, the beginning of a campaign uh, that the administration has been signaling for a while, that this could be an ongoing campaign that could last weeks, if not longer. Yeah, as one official put it, this is the beginning of the beginning. Let's shift our focus to domestic matters, namely the South Carolina primary tomorrow, the first primary on the Democratic nominating calendar. Uh, you might have seen that interview with Congressman Clyburn earlier. President Biden is expected to win South Carolina, obviously. <clears throat> but in what way is this a test of his support and enthusiasm, David, moving forward? Yeah, well, you know, in Joe Biden won among young black adults uh, in 2020, 89%. Now he's down to 60% with, with young black adults. So that's a significant loss. That's a lot of people you're losing. So he's got to somehow reestablish that. And I was very struck in your interview with how James Clyburn emphasized the student debt issue. And I think that really did turn a lot of the people. I think Gaza has turned a lot of young black voters. So he, they've got to win them back. Uh, and I, I think Clyburn put it well, which is that you ask somebody nine months before an election who they're going to vote for, they're not thinking about who they're going to vote for. They're thinking, how do I send a message? And so I think a lot of people want to send a message. When they're actually in the voting booth and Donald Trump and Joe Biden are here, it's going to be a very different decision-making process. So we shouldn't confuse polls today from an actual election. Do Democrats see it that way? I mean, because they've complained for years now 
as what they see about uh, you know this this disconnect between popular policies, as they say, popular Biden policies, and the fact that President Biden isn't getting credit for them. Uh, look, if there's anything that viewers should know and understand, if they don't know this already, to David's point about once people get into the voting booth and they have the choice between President Biden and Donald Trump, African American voters are pragmatic voters, probably the most pragmatic voters in the American electorate. Um, we're used to not getting everything that we want uh, all the time. And yet, when, when we go into the voting booth and have to click the lever and vote for someone who we think is going to best protect our families and our interests, that's when the pragmatism kicks in. Um, I can understand people being upset about student loan relief, what's happening in Gaza, voting rights, criminal justice reform. But when you're faced with an existential threat like Donald Trump and the, the damage he could do if he gets another term, Joe Biden looks even better than he does now. Let's talk about a couple of the uh, legislative priorities that are uh, being affected by this campaign, namely the, the tax plan. The House voted on Wednesday evening to pass a $78 billion bipartisan tax package that would temporarily expand the child tax credit and restore a number of uh, business taxes, um, business, or rather tax credits for businesses. And the vote was 357 to 70. You'd be hard-pressed to find 357 <laughs> members of Congress who agree on what day it is, and yet you had 357 members of Congress agree to move forward with this bill, and yet it might not go anywhere in the Senate, at least not anytime soon. Yeah, you know, I understand why you don't want to pass something that might help your opponent in the fall of an election year. But this is what well, we're in the beginning of February. So if the entire year we're not going to pass anything because we might want to help somebody, uh, that seems awfully cynical, especially at a point when one of the issues is the child tax credit, which is a which when it was briefly expanded under Biden early in the administration, lifted three million children out of poverty. That's reality. Uh, and then we may get to it, but the, the other thing that's sitting there is the, what I think of as the global chaos bill, where we're helping Iran, I mean, well, we're helping Ukraine, we're helping uh, Israel to beat Hamas, and we're securing the southern border. And if we're going to uh, tolerate global chaos for another few years, because we don't want to help our opponent or ourselves, that's just the obscene politicization of the legislative process. Well, that seems to be the dynamic with the immigration bill and even with the yeah. tax bill. Senator Chuck Grassley, according to Politico, said the quiet part out loud that he didn't think it was in Republicans' interests to move forward with this bill that could be a win for President Biden in an election year. It, what it shows is both between the tax bill and the immigration bill, the tax bill coming out of the, roaring out of the House and being blocked in the Senate by Senator Grassley, the immigration bill in the Senate that no one has seen yet, and yet you've got the Speaker of the House and Donald Trump trying to kill it before it gets out. The, Congress is broken. Congress is broken. The House is broken. The Senate is broken. And really what we're seeing, to pick up on David's point, it is sort of the, the what's the word, metastatization of what happened when um, Justice Scalia died. President Obama nominates Merrick Garland to be the Supreme Court, just, the Supreme Court nominee and Senator Mitch McConnell, I think it was uh, majority, leader at, at, majority Leader at the time, says, nah, and it was February, no thanks. We, we should wait for the presidential election. Look where we are now, where, where legislation can't even get out of either chamber because it would give a win to the president, never mind the Amer real American people who would be helped by both pieces of legislation getting out and getting to the president's desk for a signature. Before we wrap up, I want to bring up uh, the focus of Laura Barone Lopez's report tonight about Taylor Swift being targeted by right-wing talking heads, suggesting that she's part of this conspiracy to help President Biden get reelected. What is the political utility of targeting the most popular entertainment <laughs> figure in the world? Why would Republicans even engage in that enterprise, David? Yeah, that when, you know, when Ronald Reagan was president, the, the Republican Party had three purposes, defeat communism, defend free market capitalism, and celebrate an America where a wholesome pop star fell in love with an attractive football player. Like, this is as Americana as you can imagine. And yet what's happened under Trump is abnormality, <laughs> like a, a detachment from normal American life into conspiracy mongering. And then what's also happened is you have this entertainment complex of hucksters and showmen who want to generate buzz. And what's a better way to generate buzz than attack the NFL and, and Taylor Swift? David? I'm sorry, uh, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the types of conspiracy theories that are being thrown around 
would make Carrie Matheson go, oh, come on. I mean, this, this is insane. I, I can't help but, but laugh to the point of crying, but then crying because this is what's happened to one of the two major political parties in this country where you have a guy who ran for, who ran for the Republican nomination saying that this is all part of a plot for the Chiefs to win the Super Bowl so that she could come out on the field and nominate and, and, and endorse the president with people. Just pass the immigration bill. <laughs> Pass the tax, pass the tax bill, and let's have a real conversation instead of doing this hucksterism and nonsense that's happening on the right. And not for nothing, David Brooks, I hear you're a bit of a Taylor Swift fan. I like early Taylor oh, better than late Taylor. Yeah, now sometimes favorite, favorite song and favorite lyric. Well, sometimes she just touches me. She speaks for me, like. You know, she wears short skirts, I wear t-shirts. She's your she's captain, I'm on the bleachers, dreaming of a time when you wake up and find that what you're waiting for has been here the whole time and story of my life. But I will say my favorite lyric, is, I'm getting carried away here. No, please, something continue. I really, something continue. I really know about. I feel about. like I know you on better. Her, her last album, uh, she's got a lyric, my covert narcissism disguised as altruism like some kind of congressman. That is a great lyric. It shows she's been talking to Lisa Desjardins or something. She knows how congressmen, how their narcissism displays itself. So I will vote for anybody Taylor tells me to. So. Jonathan, do you have a favorite lyric? Or I do not. Okay. Well. I'm, I'm more of a Beyonce guy. All right. Well, on that note, Jonathan Capehart and David Brooks. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Have a good weekend. Be sure to tune into Washington Week with The Atlantic tonight on PBS. Moderator Jeffrey Goldberg and his panel will discuss the U.S. response to Iran-backed groups killing U.S. troops and rising tensions in the Middle East. And on PBS News Weekend, as part of our series on saving species, William Brangham dives into scientists' drastic measures to save coral reefs. We had ocean temperatures and like down in 30 feet to 60 feet of water that were 92 degrees, that's like hot tub weather. Cindy Lewis runs the Keys Marine Lab in Long Key, Florida. It's typically a research facility, but last summer it became a triage center. What it looked like here in a matter of the, the first two to three weeks when they were bringing 5,000 corals and more that were transported through here, it looked like a giant coral mash unit with people running in and out with coolers of water and, and getting corals into their tanks and everything else. That's coming up tomorrow on PBS News Weekend. And that is the news hour for tonight. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. Have a good evening and a great weekend.